Well, I'm happy to be here this morning. Uh, for those of you that, that don't know, for the last few weeks, uh, Pastor Scott and I and a few others uh, had COVID, which was no fun. And uh, I was thinking about it today. One of the things that COVID does is it takes all your energy. And anyone who's had it knows that, you know, you feel like you're doing good and then you take a few steps and you want to take a nap. And, uh, and it takes a little while to get that back. And so I was thinking today might be a little different, that partway through the sermon, I may take a nap, you know. <laughs> so so uh, hopefully we're going to get through it. But on, in all truthfulness, I just want to say how grateful I am for the family of God and for, for each one of you and your prayers and your encouragement to us. And, um, and during that, that time, it was, a, it was a bit of a thing. But you know what? God is good. And, and here we are this morning. And as I walked through the doors today and, and I came early and I heard the worship team rehearsing, I just thought how privileged we are, how grateful we are, how grateful we should be, how grateful I am for the people of God and the, and the presence of God, a place to, to worship him and to remember who he is and who we are in him. And so this morning, we're going to continue on in our, in our Way Forward series from the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4. Um, before we get there, though, I want to say, um, and I was, I was a, a, even though I, I was sick, I watched online. And how awesome it is to have that online um, church. And for those of you that are worshiping online this morning, we're just so grateful that you have opportunity to be with us as well and that we can serve you in this way. And, and um, I heard Pastor Andy just preach a great sermon from Exodus chapter 4 uh, about the power of God made manifest through very simple ways. And then last week when we heard um, Charles and, and Eunice, what a wonderful time. And I got to tell you, it must have been very electric here because it translated through as I watched on the screen, just sensing the power and the presence of God as he, he brought forth God's word with, with power. And then he also brought a perspective that we needed. How many of you appreciate hearing from somebody from a different country? You know, and, and really understanding what a global perspective that we have as the body of Christ. As we heard our brother from India bring us a message about what the church is all about, these eight pillars of the church, and that, that we don't just do church, we are church, that we're to be church, right? And I, I was inspired, and I know you were too, because, man, I saw you guys getting up out of your seat and coming forward and, and committing to the Lord and receiving prayer. And so I just want to say what a good and awesome God we have, and I'm so grateful for the relationships that he's connected us um, with and people all over. One of the things I wanted to tell you is that later that evening, I got a phone call from Charles, and he told me, he said, man, my kids were like, Dad, uh, we want Indian food. You know, we've been, we've been here for a while, I guess. So they end up in some place in, in Santa Ana. They find an Indian restaurant. And, and as they're leaving, they get involved in a car accident. It, they, they, somebody does a hit and run on them and messes up their car, bails out. Uh, you know, Charles calls me and says, I don't know this system. You know, they end up being taken because Eunice, is, as you know, she shared that she was pregnant and and so they're in, they ended up getting taken to the emergency room. And, uh, and as they're checking out, they get, you know, the news. They say, okay, well, we'll be in touch with you for your medical bills and whatever else. And Charles says, medical bills? I didn't come here willfully. The, the, that, the ambulance brought us here. He says, it doesn't work like that here. You know, you, you, <laughs> you have to pay for this. And, uh, and so, you know, they were obviously very overwhelmed, overwhelmed with sorting out insurance with this car, sorting out medical bills, and, and just trusting God all along the way. One of the things that was, was interesting, they, um, and praise God, everybody's okay, um, the baby's okay, and they said, well, we found out we're having a girl, because apparently when you check the, the, the ultrasound, you know, they told them, well, there's, your, your daughter's fine, so... so <laughs> 
<laughs> Welcome to America. So <laughs> anyways, I want to share that to say, please pray for Charles and Eunice. I know that your hearts are generous as well. If you desire to, to donate towards some of their medical costs, we don't have the specific um, number yet, and there's absolutely no pressure obligation, but I know many have asked, and so we wanted to extend that opportunity that if you do want to give, just um, come talk to one of us on staff. You can, you can designate a gift to them in the memo section if you're writing a check um, through the, the box there, or you can even give online through Benevolence, and we'll know that those who donated today towards Benevolence intended that to go to Charles and Eunice. So anyways, um, God is good, they're okay, and God is going to provide. This is going to be one more of those great stories for Charles to tell as he goes around the world in different places and shares the faithfulness of God, right? The story of what in the world happened in America and how God provided. And so, anyways, uh, that's that. Well, this morning we're in Exodus chapter 4, and if you um, would look in your Bibles to Exodus 4, it'll be on the screen as well, in the 21st chapter and as much as I'm grateful for the time that I had away, I truly thought that by getting COVID and asking Pastor Andy to preach, he might just cover one of the most awkward passages in the entire Bible. And so I found it strategic that he ended before verse 21. Uh, do you find that strategic? Um, we're going to read this, and you're going to understand why. Um, I think it's often the case that <laughs> he's hiding back there. I think it's often the case that we come to church and we hear a sermon. And, and truthfully, and I don't say this in any kind of like um, looking for some kind of affirmation, but truthfully, the, the fact is many sermons are forgettable, right? They're forgettable. Um, there are points that we might take away. Uh, and there are points of scripture that we might take away. And we just go, you know, and, and God moves every time we gather, every time we open his word, he's faithful to his word. But if I was to ask you about, hey, Four weeks ago, I preached this thing. You know, I can't even remember it, and I can't expect you to. But I got to say today, you're going to remember this one. <laughs> you're going to remember this one because uh, it's weird. And there's, there's, there's points in the Bible that you, you read and you come to passages of Scripture that are just strange. Have you ever been there before? I mean, come on, let's be honest. As you've read God's Word, have you hit a passage you're going, what does that mean? And, and somebody raised their hand twice, which I really appreciate you for that. As we read God's word, it's, it's, it's tempting for us, and it's certainly tempting for us as we preach God's word, that when we come to a passage of scripture that's weird, it's much easier to just read it and go on to the stuff that's easy. And, and this morning, I, I, I want to just take a stab at probably one of the most difficult passages in the scripture to understand. And, uh, and so that's where we find ourselves. Let me just read it to you, and it might um, cut to the chase a little bit and give you understanding of why you might remember today's message. Exodus chapter 21, excuse me, chapter 4, starting in verse 21. And then the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And when you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I'll say to you, let my son go that he may serve you. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And that's not the weird part. Verse 24, it says this. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. We're assuming that him is Moses and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. 
And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. <laughs> you know, our Sunday school children are, are now back in Sunday school. And I, I'm certain that there is not a curriculum that exists that, that has them memorize that portion of scripture. <laughs> right? It's just weird. Am I right? And, and so, first off, when you come to strange passages in the Bible, and there are a handful, you, you need to understand a few things. One, that there are more easily understood portions of Scripture than there are difficult ones. Wouldn't you agree? And, and instead of obsessing over what is that, it is wise for us to obey the things that are plain and simple. As we've said many times from this pulpit, I think it's Alistair Begg that quotes it quite often, that the, the, main, the main things are the plain things, or, or the plain things are the main things, the things that we see very clearly in Scripture. So instead of, of taking a ton of our time and trying to understand obscure passages or difficult passage, it's wise for the believer to take the ones that are super simple, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as your yourself. How many of you can understand that? And if we were to take all of our effort and energy and just pour it into that, that plain and simple thing, we would be wise. We would, we would live a, a, a beautiful Christian life. And so first off, um, not all passages are difficult, but the tough ones um, should not keep us from obeying the simple ones. Let me say that again. Not all passages in the Bible are difficult to understand, but the tough ones should not keep us from obeying the plain and simple ones. And if there's one thing that you might take away from today, my hope would be a a new desire to just simply obey the things that you understand in Scripture and to reap the blessings of doing so. Amen? The second thing is just because it's difficult, don't pass it over. Just because it's difficult, when you're reading in the Bible and you find something difficult, just because it's difficult, don't pass it over. There is a a hidden blessing awaiting you if you'll stay in it, right? And some of the ways that you can stay in it, um, I'll I'll share with you um, shortly. But um, 2 Timothy, let's look at it real quick. We know this passage of Scripture, um, but it, it defines why we don't jump over a passage or why we don't just bail on something. Because God has reason for every bit of His Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. How many of you could say in your life you need any one of those on that list? Right? Thank you for your honesty. Because that's why we come. That's why we gather. That's why we open God's word early in the morning or late at night or whenever we do. That's why we study corporately is because this word has power. And, and it says in here that he does these things through his word, that the man of God may be complete and equipped to do every good work. The third thing that we have to understand about difficult passages is that they will never lead you to a contrary understanding of the character and nature of God. In other words, if you have an obscure passage like Zipporah circumcising her son and throwing the foreskin at her husband's feet, it's never going to take you into a new understanding of God. The understanding that you have of God that's grounded in biblical truth will never sway. God is, is, is unchangeable. And so you have to be careful when you're looking at difficult passages, that you don't form new theologies, that you don't form new ideas and understanding, that you don't come to the point and go, oh, I got the aha that no one throughout 2,000 years of Christian history has ever gotten before. I got it. That is how you start a cult, right? 
And so, so when you're coming to these passages, you can rest assured that the God that you know and you understand through all the plain parts of Scripture is no different. And so there's something there of a, uh, of a place of peace that you come to and a place of certainty that, that God is who he says he is and you're not going to get something new out of the whole mix. And then finally, in this last part, as you come to difficult passages, I don't know is a very acceptable conclusion. Everybody say, I don't know. It's good practice. There are many things in the Bible that are mysterious. There are many things in life that are mysterious. Should we just not go towards them? No, we should go towards them. But if we don't know, we don't know. How many of you have been in situations where someone you can tell is just just talking? And and they don't know what they're going to say next. But they just keep going, right? And and, and they're hoping that they're going to land. And they just don't, Right? And wouldn't it have been so much better at the request of maybe a difficult question or explaining something in the universe or in the Bible that you just really didn't know anyways, wouldn't it be better just to say, huh, I don't know. Doesn't it actually like endear you towards that person? Doesn't it make you think like, man, they're smarter than I thought because they know when to say they don't know. And I got to tell you, I'm going to take a crack at this today. But over all of this, I want to say this. I don't know. I don't know. And I found great comfort in the many things that I read. I studied more about this few passages of Scripture because I had a little time on my hands. But um, I I studied more about this than I would many things. And I found a lot of comfort in in people who are far smarter than me who have, like, devoted life and time and written books about this stuff that they, too, said, we don't know. But they came up with some, some good um, thoughts, and so that's what we're going to get on. All right, you still with me? So, so one of the things that, um, that we realize and that is important for us is that we don't take this difficult passage in the vacuum. This difficult passage happens in the context to a greater story. The greater story is that we're learning the way forward through observing Moses' life. And that there was a great injustice that was happening towards God's people. The great injustice was slavery that was occurring in the land of Egypt, that the people of God were being held captive. If we just take a step up here and we look at the big picture, we remember that Moses was a Hebrew child that was born in the midst of incredible opposition towards Hebrew male children, right? And so we know that his life was spared through the hand of God and through the courage of his mother, Right, so his hand, his his life was spared as he was released into the Nile River. That he went from a Hebrew child, and after he was weaned, you know, it says in Scripture that his mother was able to nurse him, which was probably a two-year process. He was then brought into Pharaoh's household, where he was indoctrinated or assimilated into Egyptian culture. We know that because he lived in Pharaoh's home. We know that. He had a moment in time where he had the ability to see the injustice that was occurring for his own people. Um, And and, in a moment of conflict, he killed an Egyptian for abusing a a Hebrew. Remember this. And so he goes from his, uh, his Egyptian identity, he flees to Midian, right? Midian is far away. He goes far away to Midian, which is an entirely different culture. When he gets to Midian, the the women at the well that are there think that he is an Egyptian. So he is full-on Egyptian looking, 
and he carries himself like an Egyptian. I don't know what that is, but for that observer, it wasn't like, oh, the Hebrew guy that helped us. No, the Egyptian guy, right? So he goes from Hebrew child to Egyptian to now he's assimilated into a Midian culture, which is a, a, a culture that we don't know a lot about. We know that he marries the priest of Midian's daughter. We know the priest of Midian was not the priest of Yahweh. He wasn't a Hebrew priest. That's weird, don't you think? Have you ever thought about that? Are you okay? I'm the one who had COVID. Okay. And so, so, so anyways, he, he, he now is, he finds himself assimilated to a new culture, which is a Midian culture. He's now a shepherd. He's been a shepherd for a good long time. And then he has his introduction to Yahweh. He meets God by name through a bush that burns but is not consumed. At that point, he not only meets God and and sees God, but he begins to negotiate with God. And and Pastor Andy kind of walked us through some of that. But for context, I want to go back to um, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 13. Because what Moses does is he dialogues with God and he's like, no, not me. I don't speak good. You know, he goes through that whole process. But he ultimately, and this is so important, and I think it's important to our obscure passage. He ultimately puts his full cards on the table. And the moment that he puts his full cards on the table, it's almost like he's, God is, is motivating Moses. God is saying, hey, I am. If they, ask, if they ask my name, it's Yahweh. It's I am. I will be who I will be. And, and not only that, Moses, here's some, here's some tangible evidence of my power. What's in your hand? Throws the staff down, right? And, and he sees the serpent, and then he catches that thing by the, the tail. And then again, the serpent reappears. And he says, hey, go show them. Show them. Now, now we, we look at that and think, Man, wouldn't that be enough, right? But yet Moses still continues to, to say to God, I, you know, I know all that, that's true, but I have a really t- hard time communicating. And so <laughs> this is in verse 13 where Moses, again, puts his cards on the table. It's not so much that he's reluctant, at least here in Scripture, in plain black and white. It's not saying that he's reluctant. It's he don't want to do it. Now let me just pause for a minute and ask you, are there things that you you observe in life? Are there things that you sense the Spirit of God leading you towards and and, and stuff that you're, you're meant to do for God? And in your honesty, could you ever take a step back and just go, I don't want to do it. Man, I could tell you my own stories of, of several times where not only did I not feel qualified or capable of doing it, I did not have the desire to do it. This is part of the human problem, right? That, that God sees us far greater than we see ourselves. That, that through the blood of Jesus and through the, the redemptive power of a God who knows you by name and he knows your your abilities, and he even knows your quirks, but he knows the gifts that he's deposited in you. The problem is you don't. The problem is I don't. And no matter how much he negotiates with us or builds us up or, or shows us, hey, you're really good at this, or hey, and it's not just so that you're fulfilled, but it's so that you're part of his mission. And, and as we take steps into that, we, we realize our purpose. But, but see, so many of us, myself included, and certainly Moses are like, nah, I don't really want to. I'm going to play spiritual up until I come to the point where I lay my cards on the table. And this is where he lays his cards on the table in verse 13. He says, but he says, oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. Translation, 
I don't want to do it. I've given you all the excuses, and I do not now. I'm just saying, as plain and simple, I do not want to do it. And what's interesting about this statement and why I believe that this might be an indicator into the next portion of of what we're going to look at with this crazy circumcision is that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, a Levite? Can he not speak well? Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. This is the time in Scripture where we're introduced to the term, the anger of the Lord. Everybody say, the anger of the Lord. Lord. Let me tell you, it is far more fun to preach about the love of God than it is about the anger of the Lord. It fills out auditoriums. Songs are written about the love of God that warm our hearts, that draw us into Him like a moth to a flame. But when you begin to talk about the anger of the Lord, you begin to open up the door for all kinds of controversy. You begin to open up the door for, for, for those moments in time where you've heard people um, read the Old Testament or you hear people who have a concept of God that if you do one thing wrong, what do we say? I want to step away from you because that lightning bolt's about to come to strike you down. And so for a moment, I'm going to ask you to take all those preconceived ideas and hang them on the fence for just a second And deal with the portion of Scripture and deal with the reality in Scripture that we oftentimes bypass. We don't like to talk about the anger of God. Unless we're mad at somebody and we want God to get them, right? (laughs) Then we're like, we come up with all kinds of great promises of God to judge the, the ones that, like David says, I hate those who hate you, man. Would you just slay them down and slay them good? And so I, I think that the, the, one of the things that we understand about the anger of God is that it's perfect, right? Now, you know, what's that? that? That every aspect of God's character and nature build upon the other. It's not like God has this like, little, you know, don't take him off, right? Like this side of him that you just don't want to mess with. That he is perfect in his love. He's perfect in his mercy. In fact, he describes himself, especially in Exodus 34, where he says... Um, I am who I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. I'm slow to anger. And I'm abounding in love. And so the aspect of God's character, he doesn't say that he's not one who's given towards anger, that God has emotions. He has grief. He has joy. He has love. He has jealousy. And he has anger. And some of those ones are uncomfortable for us to go towards. But I figure if we're going to talk about a crazy circumcision, we might as well go towards the uncomfortable way of understanding God's anger. His anger is perfect, and it's measured, and it's it's towards injustice. As you read throughout the scripture, God's anger is aimed at injustice, and the injustice that comes through sin, the oppression that comes to innocent people, that it, it kindles the anger of God. And when you think of Moses for a moment, why the anger of God would be kindled, it's probably and possibly and likely and maybe because Moses was showing unwillingness to be the hand of God towards an injustice that God wanted to, to deal with. And, and I want to maybe ask you to, to just pause and think about this in your own life. That as we're all willing to admit that there's just stuff we don't want to do, There's ways that we could potentially be procrastinating the will of God. I I want you to think about the implications of that because I think that it helps us to understand what righteous anger is all about. That the implications of my lack of obedience is what? That I don't feel fulfilled? That I don't live the dream? 
The implication of my lack of obedience has reaching impact on you and on my family and on the community. Does that make sense? And so when we think about it in that way, there's no wonder that God in his patience is just talking and talking and, and, and motivating. And then he's like, all right, Moses, I'm mad now. I'm mad now. Not that I'm mad at you so much as I'm, I'm, I am mad at you. I, I do have anger. But I'm angry because your lack of obedience is going to affect other people. And I need you to do what I'm asking you to do. When we begin to think of it that way, it changes the dynamic a little bit. And you might go, well, that's kind of like a guilt trip heavy on a Sunday morning. My intention is in zero towards guilt. Guilt and fear are very effective motivators, but they're, they're dark, right? That, that guilt and fear and shame and all the stuff that goes with it, man, you can guilt someone into doing stuff. You can manipulate and do all sorts of stuff. God is not like that. It's a cheap way of motivation, we're motivated to obey God based in, in who we know of his character. We're motivated through faith. We're motivated through his love that reached out to us. We're motivated because of, of his, his, his reputation to never let his people down, to always be faithful. We're not motivated by guilt. But we have to also have some hard conversations sometimes and take a step back and say, is it not true that when I sin, is it not true that when I fail to obey God, it doesn't just affect my life, but it affects other people? And isn't that maddening? And so that's where we have to, to, to consider some of these things and wrestle with them. Maybe um, the anger of God was kindled because of Moses' unwillingness to obey, to be an instrument of God's justice. Maybe it was his unwillingness to be motivated towards a faith step. Maybe it was because Moses was not willing to trust, even despite the clear evidence of God's power. And I put an application point here that you might want to jot down. And it's a tough question, but I'm going to throw it out there. Is it possible that my own insecurities can lead to acts of injustice when I fail to obey God? Let me say that again. Is it possible that my own insecurities, or your own insecurities, can lead to acts of injustice when I fail to obey God, is my lack of obedience leading to injustice? Now let's look at, um, at that honest question in light of the New Testament. Because um, the anger of God isn't just an Old Testament idea or concept. The anger of God comes into the, the New Testament as well. And, and um, we know of, of his anger a few things. is One, that he's slow to it, but it can be kindled. What is kindling? Kindling is, is those little bits of wood that start a greater fire, right? And so it's the beginnings of anger. It's not the full-fledged wrath of God, but, it, but it, his anger gets kindled by our disobedience. His wrath is measured and a perfect response to evil. And his wrath is stored up against sin. Let's look um, really quickly at, at Colossians chapter 3, because I, I want to get my last little bit of time into this circumcision story because it's so fun. All right. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. This is a, um, and, and so much of the New Testament letters are written for the understanding of correcting uh, false doctrine, but also calling us to, uh, to holiness. I loved and I hope that um, some of you had a chance to be there. I know some of you did, but 
<coughs> I couldn't tell from the online thing, but the, the Maven conference that we did, the Answering Kids Tough Questions, was so good. The content was so, so good. How many of you were here for that? Don't, would you agree with me, or am I making stuff up? Well, I thought it was good. And so, so one of the things that was brought out in that conference was the understanding that, that God is holy, that we're different, right? We're different. I mean, some of us are really different, but, but we're different, we're the, the people of God. We live differently. We act differently. And some of the Q&As, I, I just appreciated parents saying, hey, you know, my kids aren't allowed to do X, and so they're not making friends, and, and what do I do? And one of the responses, I, I related with it as well. Um, you know, we, we did some of those things that were, were suggested, you know, delaying technology, for example. I remember um, poor Kate was the only child in the full eighth grade class at her school that didn't have a phone. She said, Dad, I'm literally the only one that doesn't have a cell phone. And, and I'm like, well, honey, you might have to get used to being the only one. And then I, I stayed strong. I mean, in my heart, I'm like, she's the only one? And so I pulled her brother. I said, dude, is she the only one? He goes, Dad, she is the only one. <laughs> and she turned out great, you guys. So, so... No, but, but my, my point is not a guilt trip over if your kid has a cell phone or not. You know, you, you give them to them when they need them. That was our, our, our point. But, but the point being is that we are different, right? As the people of God, that we have to get used to being different sometimes. That, you know, my, my kids might not be as expert at video games as some other kids. Not because video games in and of themselves are evil, but at an early age, it wasn't the right move. It wasn't the right place for their imagination. It, they, their, uh, their understanding of, of television has a lot to do with, like, I Love Lucy and stuff like that, which in that, those days was probably really controversial. But, but at any rate, we, you know, we're, we're different in that way a little bit. And, we didn't, and we're not hurting for it. We're not hurting for it. But sometimes it creates this awkwardness with the community around us or the people who don't live that way. But we, we, we need to remind ourselves that God is holy and he calls us to holy living. Not that watching I Love Loosely is holy. Man, I, I'm all over the place. Anyways, here we go. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexually, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And, th- and this is this. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. These things, these injustices, they're not just so God wants good boys and girls. You understand that? He's not just because I want good boys and girls who are well behaved. It's that everything that's mentioned there impacts and affects people in an unjust way. Sexual morality is not just one like personal sin that, that only impacts you or impacts your life. Pornography is not something that just impacts one person in a secret room somewhere. It has far-reaching unjust effects. Do you realize that? And so there's no, there's no mystery that the anger of God would be kindled against some of these things. And so, so you, you go on and you understand the, the, the bad news before you can understand the good news. The good news we find in, in 1 Thessalonians that the wrath of God is a real thing. The anger of God is a real thing. But listen... If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have, have been one who's, who's known the impact of sin in your life and what you're capable of, and you've come to him and you've said, God, here I am. I failed. I, I know the wages of sin are death, and, and, I, and I invite you into my life, and I ask you for forgiveness. You, you realize that the blood of Jesus covers all of these things. You realize that the wrath of God is not reserved for you. Here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
8, it says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us put on the breastplate of faith and love and, and the helmet of hope for salvation. For God has not destined for us wrath. Amen. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, let us encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. These things that I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you about, this holy living, this understanding that God calls us to a standard that's different than the rest of the world, again, I can't stress it enough, is not so that you can have a form of self-righteousness and go, man, I'm sure better than that guy. The holy living that God calls us to is, is a righteousness that, that comes through Jesus that impacts people around you. Just as your choice to disobey God, your choice to not follow him, your choice to do those things that the enemy might trick you or tempt you to do that you think is just for you, just as those things have far-reaching impact in a negative way and in just ways, your choice towards righteousness, your choice towards faith, your choice towards obedience has far-reaching positive impacts for the kingdom of God. And that, I think, is what's happening here. Does that make sense? It should inspire us. It should encourage us. I know it convicted me deeply. It convicted me deeply because the things I procrastinate spiritually begin to lose their impact and their potency. If I, if I procrastinate some of those things, it's, I'm, maybe I'm not going to do that. I don't feel like doing that. I don't want to do that. They begin to lose their importance but not to God. And there is a reckoning that comes. There is a love of God and a perfect measured response to our disobedience that God as a loving Father brings back to us. How many of you are grateful that your parents disciplined you? At the moment, how many of you were like, bring it on, mom and dad? Unlikely. I mean, some kids are that way, poor kids. They're like, no, I'm terrible, spank me, you know, whatever. <clears throat> but, but the reality of it is, is none of that seems pleasant at the time. But that is an example of Ephesians when it says that we are to be angry but not sin. That there's something powerful about righteous anger. That when something unjust happens, it should, it should bring about anger in you. But there's rules to that anger. God models it in perfection. For us as humans now, there's rules to anger. We can be angry, but we cannot sin. We can be angry, but we cannot harbor anger. We can't let the sun go down on our anger. Why do you think that is? That when you see something of, of injustice that brings about an anger response, that there's a reaction that causes you to do something, right? when you see a fight break out and you have the ability to say, hey, knock it off. In that moment, when you see somebody who's abusing somebody else and you have the ability to safely say, uh-uh, you are reacting, you are angry that that person did that to that person and you stop it. You don't sit back and stew and think of 10 different ways that you can let that guy have it because of what that guy did to that guy. That becomes sin. But the reaction of injustice is like, nope, that's not happening. You walk away from that and you realize that you might just might have been an instrument of God's righteousness in that moment. There are other examples, and I can get in trouble if I use too many of them, but, but the rules to anger is you can be angry, but it needs, to, it needs to be righteous in its anger. It needs to be measured. 
And it needs to not be harbored. It needs to happen right now, and it needs to be walked away from. And so with all of those thoughts in mind and some of that, let's look at this, because I kind of believe that this story had some things to do with God's anger. And the problems of the stories of this crazy circumcision is, and, and, and you know, in truth, scholars who understand the Hebrew language all agree that there's problems to this because we don't know who's talking, who, who God's even talking about. The pronouns are all mixed up. And some modern translations try to assign the pronoun to the proper place, but we're not 100%. I'm saying we like I'm in the company of scholars. Scholars are, are not 100% sure if God's trying to kill Moses, if God's trying to kill the child. It would seem Moses. And so let's assume that, right? That as we've read the story, now Moses is like reluctantly going to, to, to be God's instrument of justice. He's walking into it. He's making his way forward. It would seem that, that God now tries to kill him. And I want to say something about if God tries to kill somebody. If God wants you dead, guess what's going to happen? If God wants you dead, you're dead. He's God. And so you also assume, knowing who God is, that that when he tried to kill him, that it was very possibly accurately interpreted as God was seriously trying to get this individual's attention. And at the point where he's now whatever, I don't know what it looked like for him to be um, attempted to be killed by God, his wife then reacts, right? Her reaction is, where's that flint knife? Where's our son? Oh, where's that foreskin? Oh, throw it at your feet. That's normal. And then it says that God relented. God didn't kill him. And then she uses this odd statement. She says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. I've been saying that around the house throughout the week. You're a bridegroom of blood to me, right? Just, what are you talking about? Now, now, you take a step back. One, there, there are several things that, that people say. One of the things that is, is, is true is that there is very limited resource of understanding in Midian culture. But there is one uh, scholar that I read that said in Midian culture and context, there was also a circumcision rite. It was different than the Hebrew one. The Hebrew circumcision rite was very important. In fact, look really briefly with me at Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 9. I'm going to read this to you. It says, And the God... And, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Remember, he has already reminded Moses of who he is as a Hebrew in the burning bush, right? And Moses um, was aware of this here. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It is as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now Moses was circumcised. He knew he was circumcised. So this was something he was aware of. Verse 11, it says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign between me and you. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born um, in your house or bought with money from a foreigner, I know, we'll talk about that later, 
who is not your offspring, verse 13, both he who is born in your house or he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Verse 14 says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I don't know why, but this was a really big deal to God. And because it was a really big deal to God, Moses would have understood it and would have known it. And the, one, of the, the high, you know, the, one of the possibilities, let's just say, let's use our imaginations. If Moses knew this was a big deal to God and he knew his son wasn't circumcised, that, that he and Zipporah had had a few conversations about this in the past, that, that it's very possible, one scholar says, that they had said to one another, man, we really need to circumcise our kid. And, and she doesn't come from a Hebrew background. And who knows, maybe there was tension in that. It's like, oh, really, do we need to do that for a kid? Because in the Midian culture, when you get circumcised, now this is crazy to me, but you get circumcised when you get married. So at your, at your wedding, part of your wedding ceremony is a circumcision. And then after you're healed from your circumcision, you consummate the marriage. Now that was her context, Okay. Moses' context was when your child is eight days old that this happens. Now, some of you are married in the room, and, and, and some of you have different views about different things. And when you have different views about things, you have what? Conflict, heated fellowship, conversations about this. So it isn't so far-fetched to think that there are people coming from two different worldviews that have two different views about how you should treat your kid in this difficult conversation. Are you with me? Now, I don't know that this happened or it didn't, but if I was Moses, I'd be like, look, it's a big deal to God. And we want our kid to be in the covenant protection of God. And she's saying, that's just mean. You know, let him when he's old enough, if he wants to get married. You know, they're going back and forth on this. Now, fast forward, and now they're on their way to fulfill God's mission. And this thing happens. And who knows, this is 100% speculation, that she doesn't go, oh my gosh, this is my husband's dying. He was right. And Moses is like, yes, I was. Oh, no. <clears throat> he was right. And she does what she knows to do, right? She does what she knows to do. She does the circumcision, and then she says this strange thing, that you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, some scholars say that it's very possible she was using what she knew by faith of her culture to try to fix the problem that she knew was happening. In other words, she wasn't doing it the Hebrew way. She was doing it the Midian way, but she was doing it by faith. Now, listen, I don't know. But as I take a step back from it, and it's in the Bible, I have to ask myself a few questions. And this is where I will leave you with, because we are now close to running out of time. Just in recap, it's very possible that, that Moses was procrastinating obedience. He seemed to have a tendency towards that. It's very possible that Zipporah and he had had conversations about this. It's very possible that she saved the day the best way she knew how, by faith and did the ritual in a Midian way and somehow God honored it. Now, when you think about all these things and you go, okay, 
what is the message and what do I think about? I think that the Bible is clear in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we reap. When we sow into obedience, when we sow into faith, when we sow into to righteous things, we, reach, we, we reap a righteous outcome. Now, do I think that God's going to try to kill you if you don't do what you think he says? No. I think that we look through the, the word of God through the lenses of his grace. We understand that he is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. We understand that we are not reserved for his wrath, but we understand that he is serious about injustice. He is serious about obedience. And so the question, if you want to jot some of these things down to consider throughout the rest of your week, is you possibly remember that time that the pastor talked about the crazy circumcision in the Bible. Is one, are there things that you are procrastinating in terms of obedience? Is there stuff that you're not doing for no good reason other than you just don't want to do it, but you believe God wants you to do it? Is it possible that some of the things you're procrastinating are keeping you from your way forward? Right? Remember this series is the way forward. Is it possible that you're procrastinating and those procrastinating things that you're not doing for various reasons are impacting other people in negative ways? And, and in those negative ways, it could even be an injustice and that that injustice is kindling the anger of God. I thought about repentance of secret sin. You know, some of the things that we hold in our heart, you know, when the Bible tells us to, hey, put off some of this stuff. And maybe we've been, we've been delaying repentance because we've gotten used to getting away with stuff. I know this is heavy, but I'm going to just share it because it's love to share these things. That maybe we feel like we've gotten away with stuff and so we've procrastinated dealing with it. It hasn't lost its importance to God, even though it's losing its importance to you. And so I would call you back to a place of, of honesty before God in some of those areas where you've repeated certain sins and gotten comfortable with it because you haven't gotten caught. The mercy of God is calling you to repentance. The wrath of God will respond to those things because those things will ultimately affect other people. Maybe you've delayed making amends that somebody has made you angry and for good reason. But you've chosen to not play by the rules of anger. You've chosen instead to harbor bitterness against somebody else. And as we've said many times, that bitterness is like you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And so part of what could potentially be something God's getting at for you is the need to make amends. There's things like that, that we put off that we know are obedience, but we just don't feel like doing it. It's too much work or whatever. Maybe for you it's baptism. Maybe for you it's developing that discipline of generosity, generous living and, and tithing. It's like, you know, when things, when I just get a little more, right? You know the little more lie? When I get a little more, I'll get married. When I get a little more, we'll have kids. When I get a little more, we'll start. There's never enough. But there's always more than you need in Christ as you learn to live generously. And so maybe that's part of the procrastination. Maybe it's providing spiritual leadership for our families. And I'm talking to men that are in the room, dads. It's never too late 
to take a step back and go, how is it that I might provide spiritual leadership in this home? Caring for my wife, caring for my children, caring for my community. And so by God's grace and as a result of his love, we can do these things. So let's pray. Amen. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? Lord, we come to you as living sacrifices. And here, here we are. Lord, here we are doing our best to understand a really odd part in Scripture. We don't claim to know, but we claim to know that, that every bit of Scripture is profitable for something. And Lord, would you do in us something through your word today? Would you help us to understand what it is that causes a righteous anger in you and how you so lovingly measure that wrath out to us and how we might respond in righteous anger but not ever unrighteous anger. Lord, may we, as we consider all these things, consider the things that we procrastinate and the implications of them. And Lord, may ultimately we fall back into your loving arms and realize what it says in your word that for those of us that are in you, that we're not reserved for your wrath. But Lord, through Jesus, you've come and you've, <laughs> you've paid the price for us. Help us, Lord, not to use your grace as an excuse towards disobedience, towards procrastination, towards things that lead to injustice. But Lord, help us to use your grace as a means to live out our Christian life in obedience and faith and courage and love and joy and hope. May all of that touch a, a world that so desperately needs you. God, I bless your people today. God, I pray your truth would just settle over them. May it settle over them in such a rich way. May you free them of any bondage that they might find their way forward. And I pray it all in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. 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 God bless you.
Touch my 